This is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. He recently re-sung this song to honor the deaths, the recent deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. It is called It Is Enough. Enough, we cannot wait. No more excuse for bias, hate, your savagery. We cannot take Christe Okay, Holly, this is our second podcast, and what are we going to talk about? Well, we're here, and let's first remind ourselves and our um, vast number of listeners why we're calling this in between, and um, say a bit about that. What do you think in between means? Well, we're in between a way of thinking about the world that no longer exists and that's causing us to rethink everything. And we are not yet firmly established in some new paradigm that um, everybody's on board with. We don't have a common story yet. So we're in between one way of looking at the world and another way of looking at the world and each other. And we're trying to construct more compassionate and viable ways to live for everybody. I I, I always think about when when we talk about the in-between, the Plato's Symposium, where the best answer that one of the speakers comes up with, with the definition of love, is of course Socrates, who was considered one of the great, I want to say philosophical prophets. and he issues forth that love is the metaxi or the in-between. It can only happen between one and another. So what Martin Buber might say is the I thou. We have to see each other in the, in the space in between in order to really see ourselves in the other, as well as to really see the divine. 
in the other. I read a new to me definition of love just this morning in the head part of my spiritual practice that I think fits so appropriately to the current genuine crisis this country is in in so many ways. Uh, it shows up right now racially, uh, in, but it, it's a crisis of leadership. It's a crisis of justice in so many arenas. And the definition of love is, love is when you feel the other understands you. Mm. Empathy. empathy. Right? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's what empathy means, to feel with another person or to feel into another person. That, that takes me to that quote I love by Ruby Sales, mm -hmm. who says that the first question she asks people is, where do you hurt? And, and for sure, it's um, really easy to get sidelined by um, all we need to do is love. We just need to love one another. I, I, re I recall, actually, I uh, mentioned that I had a, a long conversation with a mutual acquaintance friend, Jeremy Rutledge, yesterday, in, um, in which we talked about the way that he prays. And the way that prayer works for him is in the doing, is in the actions of love, right? So there's the idea of love, that all we need to do is just love one another. But then there's the actions of love that we can do that may help grow it a little bit more into our lives. And one of the actions of love I think we can do that benefits our sort of interdependence on, with others is, is contemplate and investigate and do self-examine on kind of how am I loving? How am I living to be able to show that I mean what I say about love? You know, this uh, paradigm shift that we're in, uh, I, I've, I've used two phrases about things that are have come up in this uh, evolutionary cosmology, and that is we have reached the end of cosmological dualism. May we be, and that causes us, forces us to begin to see things in a uh, non-dual way. And we've also reached the end of an emphasis, particularly in religion, although it's a big economic thing too, in individual salvation, that placed our well-being somewhere off in the future instead of right now in the present moment. And um, in the present moment is where we got the problems. <laughs> you know, it's not off in the future. I want to say, too, that I'm really excited about this new emphasis that we're doing in ordinary life on using Buddha and Jesus as a guide through this time. We first thought it is through the pandemic, but now it's exploded to be through this racial. Right. Um, yeah. the, the revealing of the racial crisis that we've had for 400 years. Yeah. Uh, another point of reveal, right? Uh, I, I love the, the meaning of apocalypse, that is yeah. to uncover, to pull back, right? And we've had definitely moments of apocalypse over time, and I believe this is one. So the, the opportunity, I think, when we have an apocalypse moment is to really look and to, 
again, to look inward and deeply at our own selves, but also to look outward and to not turn away, to not turn away from what is, from the suffering, from the reality that people are in pain, in deep, deep pain. I think as I look at the demonstrations, the marches, the things that people are saying, the hurts that people are revealing of the kind of demonstrations that happened about the Vietnam War in the 60s. And those demonstrations were effective in helping bring that war to a conclusion. And I certainly hope that um, that's true for what's going on right now. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, the, the fact is that I wanted to deal with Buddha and Jesus because they both had their teaching grow out of their recognition of the immense suffering that human beings experience. Buddha saw it one way, Jesus saw it another, but they taught the same thing about it. Um, Buddha saw that the inevitable lot of the human being was to grow old, get sick and die, and have suffering in all aspects of that because people we love grow old, get sick and die too. And that our attachments, uh, which we cannot help but form, cause us to suffer. Jesus, his concern about suffering grew out of his passion for social and economic justice for people. People suffered because they did not, they were treated as being expendable, as not mattering. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that has been communicated over 400 years in this country, particularly by the church, the white church to black people is, you don't matter. And you don't belong. And, and that causes immense suffering for everybody. And uh, the genius aspect, you mentioned Socrates, uh, I agree with you. I think he was one of the leaders in this first axial age movement who said, you have to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Right. And as you mentioned last week, that how many of our state and government institutions put that on the buildings, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we live in a culture that is kind of addicted to um, rightness, to power, to, um, and I'm not talking about the kind of right relationship that we talk about in terms of relate relationship with one another that's driven by compassion. I'm talking about rightness in terms of righteousness, right? A kind of defensive rightness. And mm -hmm. that addiction to rightness has um, facilitated an inability to really connect with suffering, with the suffering that has been caused by a um, more rule-based, individual-based religion rather than a more collective community-based religion. Uh, again, in my conversation with um, Jeremy Rutledge, that he, he mentioned an author that I, whose name I can't recall right now, who writes about the two Christianities that sprung up in the US. And I know you can speak more on this too, but one Christianity was kind of the manifest destiny, building on a hill. This is, you know, a, a, a separate, this is, this is our place to go. This is where we go and get saved. This is where we belong here. We have the right, our, our white European 
colonizers have the right to be here, right? And so that, that Christianity became a top-down Christianity. And then there was another Christianity that sort of took root among the Africans and then African-Americans who were brought here against their will as slaves. And probably many of them came with different religious practices, but to, or, to orient around something together, their Christianity became one of understanding oppression, became one of liberation, became one that identified Jesus with those who suffered, identified Jesus with those who who wanted to be liberated. And that's what James Cone writes about, right? When he writes about a black theory of, a black theology of liberation is Jesus and God are always with the suffering. And, and I would hope that people understand that the end of an emphasis on individual salvation brought to us by the new, by the, cosmological evolution, evolution cosmology, um, under, undergirds exactly what you just said, that um, it can't be just me that I'm interested in. It has to be others. You know, we are um, calling the, the talk that we're going to do on Sunday, the system isn't broken. And um, last Sunday, a section of the New York Times front page was completely blank, except for the headlines, which seemed to be broken and falling off the page. And the headline said, the world is broken. That section contained a long article by Thomas Friedman, someone that I, whose writing I respect. And he talked about in that article, various things that have hit us over the years, like 9-11, like the crash in the 2000, early 2000s, the economic crisis, like COVID-19, mm-hmm. like this racial mm-hmm. problem that's being uncovered right now. And, and he's saying, we had ample warning about all of this, and we didn't pay attention to it. Yeah, And I thought it was so ironic that he ends, and he mentioned the climate catastrophe that we have as well, and I thought it was ironic that he ends his long column with these two paragraphs. They're very brief, but I want to read them. That's the uber lesson here. As the world gets more deeply intertwined, everyone's behavior, the values that each of us bring to this interdependent world, matters more than ever. And therefore, so does the golden rule. It's never been more important. Do unto others as you wish them to do unto you, because more people in more places, in more ways, on more days, can now do unto you and you unto them like never before. That's spot on. Yeah. If only those were the founding words, of our nation as we know it. If only those were the words that we took seriously. And we can't live in if onlys, but I do believe that what we can work toward is actually inhabiting those words. There is an evolutionary time 
the, the way of universe formation is that things must first differentiate, become identified as singular, right? A molecule must be singular from another molecule. Those two molecules then can join together to become something else. So one of the patterns in universe formation is differentiation. And then the other pattern in universe formation is communion. In other words, the parts must work together as a whole. I've compared this so often to the human body, right? Each of our organs, each of our cells, each of our bones is an individual thing, but remove one aspect of it and our body doesn't function the way it's intended to. They all have a diverse, unique function. And the social meaning of that, I think, is to differentiate, to have our own identities is important. And I think that's where we are right now. We're in a differentiated state and we're kind of realizing it's chaotic to be differentiated. It's chaotic to be, um, to figure out where we belong, to figure out how to, how to come back, come together in a way that's meaningful and useful. But if I think about universe formation, then my hope is that that also applies in a social system. And as I'm constantly reminded, evolution is long. It's taken us 14.8 billion years to get where we are, 4 billion years for the earth to get where it is, 200,000 years for humans to get where we are. So it could be a while. Without wanting to sound overly cheery or dismissive, I have hope that the way of nature is also the way of social interactions, that we will bend toward communion. So it strikes me that one of the genius aspects of Buddha and Jesus and Confucius and Socrates and others that we can mention, but we're just using primarily mm -hmm. Jesus and Buddha because there's so many amazing parallels in their lives and the stories that grew up around them and everything. One of the genius aspects is that each of them got enough people to listen to them and to take them seriously that they started massive movements so that mm -hmm. you've got these two characters in religious history in in global history is probably being two of the most important figures ever to have have lived and you wonder i mean i do i i read something like a book you've heard me talk about before uh the book of joy mm -hmm. and i'm so just it just makes me smile to read that book and to encounter the two figures of Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, who are just so lighthearted and optimistic and loving in spite of everything that's gone on in their backgrounds and everything. And and I think you know what what we're talking about, what Buddha and Jesus talk about, what the Dalai Lama talks about and Desmond Tutu talk about makes so much sense. Why don't more people see it? And the answer is fairly simple. Right. It's called greed. Um, Upton Sinclair wrote, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. That's right. Yeah. This to deconstruct power is to deconstruct greed, right? And and that's so true when we're asked, well, what are you willing to give up? in order to attain this level of being that we talk about. What are we willing to give up? Richard Rohr says that we encounter in real conversion, 
dealing with the three P's, power, position, and possessions. And um, both Jesus and Buddha said, mm -hmm. you have to be willing to let go in order to have the life you say you want. And that's true. You know, there's a great story in the Jesus narrative about a man who comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to have eternal life or to have the life you're talking about? And Jesus says, well, what do you know already? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. That's it. Mm -hmm. And the guy still was not satisfied. And he said, well, what else can I do? And Jesus said, it's easy. Just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the man walked away in great sorrow. Yeah. Now, I don't think any of us is going to sell everything we have and go give it to the poor. But I do think that we must learn to see that it is in our own best interest that everybody does well. Right. And, you know, a lot of um, focus in this country is on land ownership, that land ownership is in some way belonging, right? Uh, because it allows you to participate in, in an economic system or in um, acquiring that our, our culture so values. I don't know whether I think those values are the ones that, that we quote unquote should operate by, but they are the ones that we operate in. So one of the ways to talk about belonging in this country is who, who gets a piece of the land. To be very transparent, my, one of my first ancestors to arrive here arrived in 1609 as a nine-year-old boy and at age 18 for being an original colonizer was given acres of land, given land that mm -hmm. wasn't anyone's to give away to begin with, right? But, but his participation in the economy through the acquisition of land by farming allowed him to participate in this system that was being created. So what I hear a lot of folks who are talking about reparations, for example, is that, is that acquisition of land will allow for participation. It's an interesting theory. Yeah. yeah. How do we do that? Well, I think there are suggestions for it. Uh, I don't think there's a streamlined way of doing it, but one of it is asking ourselves, those who hold the greatest amount of wealth in this country, again, what are we willing to give away? What percentage of our wealth are we willing to give away with no strings attached so that those who do not have can do what they want with it in order to participate in the system that we've created, in order to recreate the system that we've created? And in our country, that looks like uh, people of color, black, brown, Native Americans, from whom land has been withheld. And so, you know, I guess the question is of our great wealth holders is, are we willing to detach from a certain amount of wealth so that it can be utilized in communities by communities rather than those who are wealthy dictating the terms of its use? Mm -hmm. That's, that's one, one idea. Um, I've, I've been thinking about the idea of an urban land trust. I have no idea how to go about that, but it's just an idea. Well, um, I truly believe that out of this current unrest, something 
quite different is going to emerge. I don't know what that looks like. I do know that um, white people need to shut up and listen and to love the other by creating a genuine experience that the other is understood. We need to decenter ourselves and learn to realize that we don't know this particular experience. I want to say though that I think we also, I've said this to you a couple of times and have been writing about it. We need to touch the edges of our own grief about that. And this is, I think, where suffering comes into play. It is okay for white folks to have grief, to be unsettled, to be uncomfortable and even angry about what's happening. It may be a different entry point. It may come from a different place, but to feel that grief and to be upset is a catalyst for something shifting in us, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think that to, we really need to sit with that feeling. So often we want to be like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's too hard to feel this. And the second we sort of get called out from messing up, we tend to go, well, I tried, I'm not doing it anymore. We're gonna get called out. We're gonna mess up. We're going, but you know, the hope is that we fall forward. And I really firmly believe in that touching of grief and learning to suffer with, um, understand where grief, anger, suffering, and pain is coming from. And that our ancestral heritage is part of that. I would add another word to that, and that's guilt. Yeah, I I really, really liked what um, Sean Fitzpatrick said about feelings of guilt. And also, I I think a pastor in Denver that a friend shared on her social media, that guilt, if we stay there, while it is important to acknowledge, but if we stay there, guilt renders us immobile because we keep the story centered on ourselves. I feel so guilty, I don't know what to do. And to acknowledge our guilt, which I think is actually necessary, and to say there's beneficial regret right? There's beneficial regret. If I stay there, I might feel immobilized. And that sense of immobilization is, as Sean Fitzpatrick said, designed to keep the status quo. So we need to push past the guilt into mobilization of of other emotions that are creative, right? That, That the comparison to guilt by this pastor in Denver. Again, sorry for not remembering the name. If I can, I will look up and credit in the notes, but uh, said the, the emotion that moves us, that moves us into the circle and allows for empathy is grief. So, and from a psychological perspective, um, let's, let's say that we're dealing with somebody who's experienced extreme trauma and they bring the trauma into a therapy, which means healing context. And the person who is the recipient of the story of trauma, the most important thing that person can do is just sit with it. And to say, 
I am so sorry this has happened yeah. to you. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to minimize it. Just be with it. And then you can take a step right. after that. Right. And, and, and I, I do think that it's very important. Um, I don't want to offend anybody. I mean, it's not in my best interest to do that. Um, I told you in a conversation that we had the other day, among my colleagues at St. Paul's, I probably see myself much more as a spiritual teacher than a pastor. And I respect my colleagues' commitment to be pastor to all people. I respect that. At the same time, I feel this impulse when somebody says, well, I'm not a racist, to call them out on that. It is virtual. It's impossible to be a white person in American culture and not participate in systemic racism. Right. Sorry. Yeah. But that's just a fact. I think we have to learn to um, see, see racists differently, that it's a system of ideas. It's a system that's, uh, that's set up to preference one race over the other. There are people who participate actively in racism. They are racist. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are benign racists have participated in and benefited from the system without really knowing, with blinders on, mm -hmm. without really knowing how to connect to it and or to dismantle it. And I, I, I want to say, and this is, I think, a valuable phrase, I'm not a racist is not enough to be... If we can acknowledge, yeah, I've benefited from racism and maybe even unknowingly participated in it, how can I be not just not a racist, but how can I be an anti-racist? How can I acknowledge the racism that I was kind of born into, whether I like it or not, and work toward anti-racism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a plan for that? <laughs> I have, a, I have an eightfold path. <laughs> you have an eightfold path. You know, actually, uh, honestly, like this is a little bit about what I'm, and I'll get into that, not maybe on the podcast, but as I do the work, what I'm interested in doing for my dissertation is kind of a, how do white people heal white supremacy? How do white people heal from this thing that we didn't know we agreed to? Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is learning to see the truth, learning to see the areas of truth. Well, for me, it was falling in love with a black woman when I was a kid. And that uh, that started uh, a lot for me because mm -hmm. when, and my brother, who's six years older than me and now deceased, he, he did not have that same experience. So my brother was an explicit racist, as was my father. And they were both, I want to be clear, really decent human beings and church going people and wanted the best of their kids and everything. But I somehow knew when my father or brother would say about some black person, well, they could make something of themselves, you know. I knew that wasn't quite true because they had a different fate than I had. Yeah. You know, I was born a white male in America to a moderately moderate income family. Uh, I was not born with disadvantages. I was born with a family that had a commitment to higher education. And um, not everybody's born into that kind of privilege. Nope, I was 
very much born into privilege and, and privilege that I'm thankful for the opportunities that it allowed me to go to college and not have loans, to go to grad school and not have loans. I thank my dad immensely for having the foresight to set that aside for me. Mm -hmm. I, I've benefited from it hugely. And the bootstraps mentality doesn't serve us anymore. It doesn't serve us to say, well, everybody in America has opportunity. We have to look at where people start out and what opportunities are available to them based on the starting line. Have you seen some of these videos that talk about if you want to understand white privilege, you need to look at this video and it'll have people on a starting line, uh, black, brown, white. If you, and it's like, we're gonna do a race, but before we start this race, I have a few questions. And depending on your answer to this question, you get to take a step forward. If you have white skin, take a step forward. If you had, if you grew up in a middle income family, take a step forward. If your education was paid for, take a step forward. If you have never suffered from racism or um, been degraded because of the color of your skin, take a step forward. Mm -hmm. so you can imagine that the people with white skin on this line already are at the finish line. By the time they've just done the preliminary race preparation, right? And so this, you know, I've heard this comparison made so many times, where you start from dictates so much of your opportunity. So I'm thinking about the woman whose name is Jane. I'm blocking on the last In name. Washington. She's in Washington. Yeah. 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 Anyways, you know that she yeah. and I are the same age. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And uh, first, when I first uh, learned about the teaching that she does along that same line, mm -hmm. she does the th same thing. And she started her teaching on racial equality issues growing out of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, a video of her saying to uh, all white audience, she said, how many of you, knowing what you know, would be willing to be treated as a black person is treated in this society? Would you hold up your hand? Mm -hmm. And of course, no hands go up. And she said, maybe you didn't understand the question. So mm -hmm. she repeats it and nobody holds up her hand, mm -hmm. her hand. And she says, that just shows you know what's going on mm -hmm. and you wouldn't want it for yourself. Mm -hmm. So why is it okay for anybody else? Right. And that's different than, um, let's say, like loving being Black. Um, Josh, my husband, uh, friends and colleagues that I have who are Black, they love being Black for a variety of reasons because of the creativity and the, um, and the community. And a lot, a lot, everyone would have different things to add because the multiplicity of experience in the Black community is wide and vast. Um, so being, you know, how power has treated Blacks in America is very different than, I think, loving Blackness, right? And I think that's important to distinguish because I don't think many Black people I know would trade being Black, right? But they would trade the treatment that they've received any day, the treatment I was listening to a video by um, ESPN commentator Emmanuel Acho, and mm -hmm. he was a football player at UT, 
these are the things that run through our filter feed here because I have a sports fan husband. I'm a sports fan, but he um, is a man who lives in Austin, Texas, black man. And he was talking about difficult conversations with white folks from a black man. He was kind of willing to put this information out there and put it on public um, display. And he gave the comparison of him riding his bike and um, seeing someone else on a bike in front of him on a narrow lane. And as he, you know how when you're riding your bike, you're supposed to say on your left when you're approaching another person so that they know to expect you. Because when you have someone speeding past you, it can be a little bit frightening. As he approaches this person, he keeps saying on your left, she doesn't hear, he gets closer. On your left, she doesn't hear, he gets closer. So he gets louder, 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 on your left. And she never hears him, but the lane is so narrow that they collide. And what he made the comparison to, which is so brilliant, is that for years, black folks have been saying, on your left, and now mm. we're in another collision. We've collided because they haven't been heard in saying, instead of on your left, we're oppressed. And so that voice got louder and louder and louder until it wasn't heard and the collision occurred. So um, we're going to continue talking about some of this on Sunday. Uh, I hope people join yeah, us. Yeah, we are. May I read a poem before we close? Okay. And it's a, it's a poem. I'll show you the front of the book, but it's called The Tradition by Jericho Brown. But he's a, he's a black poet, um, really powerful. This one is the poem entitled The Tradition, the name of the book. Aster, nasturtium, delphinium. We thought fingers and dirt meant it was our dirt. Learning names and heat and elements classical philosophers said could change us. Stargazer, foxglove. Summer seemed to bloom against the will of the sun which news reports claimed flamed hotter on this planet than when our dead fathers wiped sweat from their necks. Cosmos, baby's breath. Men like me and my brothers filmed what we planted for proof we existed before too late sped the video to see blossoms brought in seconds. Colors you expect in poems where the world ends, everything cut down. John Crawford, Eric Garner, Mike Brown. We have other names to add to those flowers that have been cut down. Yeah. And I just want to honor those names. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. These are the most recent. Yeah, but there are a lot of them. A lot, far back in history. So compassion and suffering, we'll pick it up. Maybe next podcast, but certainly on Sunday. Okay. okay. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Holly. It is enough. We cannot breathe. Will you stand there and watch us bleed? Are you not moved by cries and pleas? Christine. No, no more death it is.
lives cut short, Christe Our souls sustain. 